there's a story of a little girl who came to her father and asked him for a nickel. But he didn't have any change. All he had was a $20 bill. And though he knew that was a, a lot of money for a little girl, he thought to himself, well, my daughter's been a good girl. So he decided to give her that $20 to put into her piggy bank. And the little girl said, oh, no, Dad, you don't understand. I want a nickel. To which the dad replied, oh, no, honey, you don't understand. This is a $20 bill. This is a bunch of nickels. But the little girl still didn't understand. She said, Daddy, why won't you give me a nickel? And he tried to explain it to her by explaining how many nickels were in a dollar and how many nickels were in $20, but she still wasn't getting it. So the father searched the house till he finally found a shiny silver nickel, but wanted to give his daughter one last chance to choose between the nickel and the $20 bill and as many of you probably guessed it, the girl chose the shiny silver coin. Now, if you're like me, when you hear this story, you think, man, if this, if this girl would have only trusted her dad, you know, she would have only listened to him, she would have received so much more than what she asked for. But let's be honest, believers. Though we think in this way, don't we often do the exact same thing when it comes to our spiritual life? So many times we settle for nickels when there are 20s to be had. We often go to God and we request and, and, and ask and sometimes even expect and demand Him to give us the bare minimum while He's standing there ready and willing to give us so much more than that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. We're continuing our sermon series this morning through the book of John. And what we've been doing over the past five weeks is we've been taking a chapter a week out of this great book. And each week we've been asking this question, what do we learn about Jesus from this chapter? And we've already talked about all sorts of things, and we're only in chapter 6. I mean, we've talked about knowing Jesus as, as Savior and Redeemer, knowing Him as the living water. Last week, we talked about knowing Jesus as God the Son. Well, this week in, in John 6, we're going to be talking about knowing Jesus as the bread of life. And as many of you know already, this chapter... Like the one we talked about last week is similar. It has a similar layout. It begins with a miraculous story, and then it follows with Christ's teaching about the miracle that he performed. So like last week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to first tell you the story, and then I'm going to take time, the rest of our time, to focus on Christ's teaching about the miracle that he performed. First, let's look at the miracle Christ performed. Look at the first part of John chapter 6. We're told that at some time has passed between the events of chapter 5 and the events of chapter 6. And we're told after a period of time, Jesus crossed over to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And at this time, he had a large crowd of people that were following him. And the reason why many of them were following him is because many of them had witnessed the many miracles that Christ had performed. 
And the text tells us that there were about 5,000 men following Jesus. And many commentators believe that if you count up all the the women and children, there could have been as many as 20,000 people following Jesus. So picture this. You have anywhere between seven to 10 to 15 to 20,000 people who were following Jesus. And one day, Jesus is watching this big crowd approach. And it's nearing lunchtime. And Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? And Philip basically says, feed all these people? What are you talking about? He says 200 denarii, which would have been about eight months worth of wages. He said that much money, that amount of money would not be enough to give each person in a little nibble. He basically says we can't provide them with food. We need to send them back into town. Well, we're told that Andrew, another disciple, Peter's brother, reports to Jesus as well. And he wasn't much help. Uh, he found one guy who uh, actually he turns out to be a great help, but he didn't think he was being a big help. And he comes back and reports that there is one boy in the crowd who has five loaves of bread and two fish. But then we're told that Andrew even mentioned that this boy's lunch would not be enough to even make a dent in this crowd. So again, he agrees with Philip that the crowd needs to be sent on their way. But notice how Jesus responds. Instead of sending the folks away, Jesus has everyone in the crowd sit down. And he requests that the boy's food be brought to him. So the disciples bring him the bread and the fish and Jesus begins to break up this food and he begins to divide it up and and pass it out. And he multiplies this food and multiplies this food as he passes it out over and over again until everyone in the crowd is fed. It's a miracle, an incredible miracle. No other explanation for it. And the text here tells us that there was so much food distributed that when everyone had what they wanted, we're told when everyone was finished, they gathered up the leftovers and the leftovers filled up 12 baskets. It was awesome. It was a great miracle. So that's the miracle. And again, it's a popular one, isn't it? This is one of the few events in Jesus' earthly ministry that are found in all four Gospels. And... It's a popular miracle, and and this miracle makes Jesus even more popular than he already is. He already has this large crowd of people who are following him, but after this miracle, many are wanting to crown Jesus king. So as a result of this miracle, you have a lot of people wanting to be where Jesus is, wanting to follow him. You have a lot of people wanting to look to him and make him king. Now that sounds like a good thing, right? Doesn't that sound good? Because Jesus is the king, and he came to be followed. But what we're going to see in this chapter here is that there's a problem. And it's the same problem that many of us have today when it comes to following Jesus. And the problem is this. Though you have many people wanting to follow Jesus, they wanted to follow him for the wrong reasons on their terms. Notice that's point number one here. One of the major problems 
when it comes to following Jesus is that people want to follow him, but they want to follow him on their terms. For example, in this story, you had some people wanting to follow Jesus to improve their circumstances. Improve circumstances. Let me show you where we see this in the text. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, let's stop there for a minute. John tells us here that when the people witnessed this miracle, they began to say, Jesus is the prophet. Not a prophet, but the prophet. Well, who is the prophet? Who are they referring to there? Who are they talking to? Well, let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. I have it up on the screen. You can turn there as well. Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is Moses speaking. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses taught that there was going to be another prophet who is going to come along and be like him. He is telling them that there is a second Moses coming. And for the longest time, the people of God were looking for and waiting for this prophet to come. And here comes Jesus onto the scene. And, and think about what Jesus is doing. He's performing miracles, isn't he? Just like Moses. And, and think about the miracle here in John 6. In this miracle... Jesus feeds a large multitude of people. Sound familiar? Yeah. Remember, through Moses, God provided manna for his people while they're in the wilderness. And here is Jesus performing this miracle by providing bread and fish for this large group of people. And people began to talk amongst themselves and say, hey, maybe Jesus is the prophet. Maybe Jesus is the second Moses. Maybe Jesus is our Moses. Maybe Jesus is the Moses Moses was talking about. Deuteronomy 18. People were excited. And the reason why is because of what God ultimately did for his people in the Old Testament through Moses. You remember? He delivered them from bondage and oppression. So many are thinking here, maybe Jesus is our Moses. Maybe he's the one who's been appointed to come by God to be our deliverer, to deliver, to deliver us from our bondage and our oppression. Now, the Jews at this time were in the promised land, but they were still experiencing oppression. At this time, in the first century, they were suffering under Roman oppression, and they wanted desperately to be delivered from it. So they were, they were excited about this possibility of a guy like Jesus coming along who is going to come and deliver them. But look at Jesus' response in verse 15. This is key. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus picks up on this excitement about him being the prophet, and he senses that they're going to come and make him king, and notice what he does here. We're told that he withdrew. He got out of there to be by himself. Why? I mean, isn't this what Jesus wanted? 
Think about it. Didn't he want people to follow him? Didn't he want to be king? I mean, he's got thousands upon thousands of people ready to follow him and make him king. And what does he do? He withdraws. He pulls away from them. Why? One of the main reasons why is because they don't have the right motive for following him. Here's the truth. The truth is many in the crowd really did not want a king to come in and call the shots and tell them how to live and how not to live. They did, however, want someone in a position of authority who would work for them and, and, and fight for them and make life good for them. They wanted a king who would use his power to improve their circumstances. And Jesus knows this, which is why he withdraws. Let me show you where we see this in the text. Look at verse 28 and following. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? See what's happening here? Back in verses 14 through 15, those in the crowd said, we, you know, we want to make you king. We want to follow you as our king. And now in verse 28, Jesus takes them at, at their word and he says, okay, all right, you want to follow me as king? If I'm the king, I'm telling you, you must be devoted to me. You must believe in me and notice their response back they basically say well what do you mean we have to be devoted to you you know what do you mean we have to believe in you look at look at uh, verse 30 they said what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you what work do you perform look at verse 31 our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and that sounds pretty good he gave them bread from heaven to eat so we see here in their response, their true motivation for following him. Though they claimed to want Christ, they wanted him for their benefit, for their sake, for their deliverance from their problems. They didn't really want Jesus as king. They just wanted someone influential who could get them what they want. And folks, this is true of many today when it comes to following Jesus. Many view Jesus today as this candidate running for president. They think, before I choose you, Jesus, you tell me what you can do for me. We often think about Jesus in this way, and we often present him in this way, don't we? Like a candidate trying to get our vote. We think of Jesus as this guy who comes along and says, hey, I'd really appreciate your support. Would you, would you mind giving me your support? Would you follow me? Would you consider voting for me? Consider being a part of my team? And if you do so, I'll make life really good for you. We view Jesus like Pedro on Napoleon Dynamite. You remember, any of y'all seen Napoleon Dynamite? Remember Pedro? He runs for student body president and he says, if you vote for me, all of your wildest dreams will come true. We think of Jesus in this way. We think he presents himself in this way. And, and many of us present him in this way. When many do what is called evangelism, they do it like a sales pitch. They say, hey, does your life stink? 
Are you down and out and lonely and depressed? Well, if you pray this prayer or walk this aisle, if you will call on Jesus, all of those things will go away. I've had people try to sell that to me. They've said to me, hey, if you give your life to Jesus, all your problems will go away. Really? Is he going to get my job back? Is he going to bring back the loved one I lost? Is he going to cure me from cancer? Is he going to get me out of debt all at once? Well, he can do that. But is he obligated to? Is is there an agreement between us and Jesus when we come to him that he's got to take care of all these things? That's what the crowd thought in John 6. They were interested in following Jesus because of what he could do for them. And that's the, the way many of us think about him as well. There are many today who are interested in following Jesus if he will make all their wildest dreams come true. Folks, that's not the way Christ presents himself. The crowd in John 6 were wanting him to make their life better. They were looking for a self-help, Tony Robbins, make my life better, Jesus. They were wanting him as king and deliverer, but for their sake, to deliver them from oppression. And, And what does Jesus do? He withdraws. They wanted him on their terms, and Jesus says, you can't have me like that. You can't follow me like that. And he withdraws. So one motivation that we have for following Jesus that is not sufficient, that doesn't work, is following him to improve our circumstances. And another reason many follow Jesus is this reason, to get more stuff. Some view Jesus as a spiritual Santa Claus. This genie in a bottle who will get us what we want, when we want it. And there are many in the crowd in John 6 who are like this. Let me show you where we see this. Look at John chapter 6, verse 25 and 26. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus has withdrawn from the crowd, but those in the crowd eventually catch up to him, and when they find him, he's on the other side of the sea, and they say, they they ask him, Teacher, how did you get here? When did you get here? And notice, Jesus doesn't give an answer, but he again tells them that they are seeking him for the wrong reasons. He just cuts to the chase. Says, you guys are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, the only reason that you have sought me out, the only reason you've come all this way is because I'm able to fill your stomachs. It's making the point here once again. Though you're seeking me, though you're following me, though you want to be where I am, you are wanting me for the wrong reasons. You have the wrong motives for following me. And listen, this is the key truth. From our story today, we learn here a key truth here. That there is a right motivation for following Jesus. Following Jesus is not enough. The right motivation is what's key. You must follow him 
for the right reasons. If you have the wrong motivation for following Jesus, listen to this. If you are following Jesus on your terms, you're not going to last. Your faulty faith is going to fizzle. And notice I said faulty faith. And again, this is what we learn here in our text. The people that Jesus addresses in verses 25 through 26, they were going after him for the wrong reasons. They were following him because he had provided them with bread and fish. He had filled their bellies with food. They were looking to him in an incorrect way as this spiritual Santa Claus, as one who could get them what they want when they wanted it. Guess what we learn here? Doesn't work. And again, folks, there are many today who need to let this truth wash over them. Need to let this truth sink in. When You know what? When people are shopping around for something to believe in, they often stop by the Jesus aisle. They do. And they try to look to him and receive him in this superficial and self-serving way. For example, some go to Jesus because they want health. They want to be healthy, and they think that Jesus is the one that can make that happen. Other people go to him because they want wealth. People say, I want to be rich, and because Jesus owns it all, I'm going to come to him and follow him so that he will give me what I want. Others want to be successful, so they look to Jesus for that. Some say, I want heaven. I want, a, I, I want heaven, and by heaven I mean a cool place with streets of gold with loved ones who have died, and, and if I go to Jesus, he can get me that. But you know what you find in all of these situations, though many would not admit it? The truth of the matter is, those who seek Jesus for these other reasons really don't care if they have Jesus or not. They want health, wealth, and happiness. That's what they want, and they simply view Jesus as a means to acquire those things. So the problem with this motivation is these things, this stuff becomes a person's ultimate end and not Jesus. Jesus is merely the means to acquire those things. And again, that's the problem with many in this crowd. They are going after Jesus for something else so they can get something else. And here it happens to be food for their stomachs. He can get them more food. He can get them stuff. Jesus is not their end. He's simply the means to something else. And again, this approach is wrong as well. So we've discussed the wrong ways to seek Jesus. We've discussed the wrong reasons for following him. Now let's talk about the right reasons. Though the problem is that people often seek Jesus on their own terms. We learn here and elsewhere in the scriptures that the solution is to follow Jesus on his terms. Jesus must be followed on his terms. First, he must be followed for who he is. Look at John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So think about this. You have these people in John 6 who are coming to Jesus because he's the one who has miraculously filled their stomachs with bread. And notice Jesus' response here. Notice his response. He says, I am the bread. I am the bread. 
I am the one who satisfies. If you want physical bread, you're going to be full for a while, but after a short period of time, you're going to be hungry again. In other words, if it's physical bread that you seek, you're not going to find lasting satisfaction. That's only found in me. Jesus says, I am the bread. If you come after me, if you follow after me, and only me, I can satisfy that hunger that runs deep inside of each and every one of you. This is the same promise he made to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Remember that? Like the woman at the well, many in the crowd in John 6, they they had this desire for satisfaction that lasts, for happiness long term. They had this, this deep hunger, and Jesus shows them here that their hunger goes deeper than just some bread, some fish, right? Same with the woman at the well. He showed her that her thirst went deeper than the water from some well. And he makes the same promise here. Again, Jesus, he, he's, just, he, he's trying to show them that their hunger, the hunger that they have, it cannot be pacified with these physical things. He says, you guys just had a great all-you-can-eat meal of bread and fish, and now you're here seeking me just a little while after for more of it because that can't satisfy you. But Jesus says, but I am the bread of life. If you come to me, follow me, believe in me, trust in me, you will never hunger or thirst, but I have to be your end. He says, you can't come after me because you want something else from me. You have to want me from me. You have to realize that I'm all you need. You have to realize that I'm the only one that can ultimately fill you and quench you and satisfy you. So the proper motivation for following Jesus, the motivation that takes, that works, is to follow him because of who he is. And second, Christ must be followed for what he has done. Look at John 6, 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice the imagery here. Isn't this great? Notice he says, I'm the living bread that has come down from heaven. Jesus is using this imagery here to point the Jewish people back to the time when God provided manna for them from heaven. You remember that? God's people have been delivered from Egypt and God sent bread down to feed them. And Jesus is using this imagery here to say, I am your manna. I am the bread. I am your provision. I am the bread of life that God has sent down for you. They wanted physical bread, food for their stomachs, and Jesus says, God has given you so much more. He has given you me. And I have come down as the bread of life to give you life in my name. That's what he did, didn't he? Listen, Jesus left the greatest of circumstances to take on the very worst of circumstances for us as our bread, the bread of life, to give us life in his name. I love the old hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain 
in it are these lyrics. Listen to this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Isn't that great? This is what Christ has done. He's left the greatest of circumstances to take on the very worst of circumstances. And what do we often do? We often go to God and say, God, could you just give me some relief from this, from this thing I'm going through today? Can you just give me a relief from, from my current circumstances? Times are tough for me. My life stinks. Can you just help me out with this? That's all I want. Nothing else. Again, we're asking for nickels when there are 20s to be had. But God's saying, don't you realize what I've done for you? I've sent my son for you. And he has willingly given up the greatest of circumstances to take on the very lowest, the very worst of circumstances for your sake so that you, through him, could be reconciled to me. So that you, through him, could experience the very best of circumstances, eternal life with me. Folks, that's the right motivation for following Jesus. That's following Jesus on his terms. When we follow him for who he is, who is Jesus? He's the, he's the bread of life who has been sent down for us from the Father to satisfy us, to give us life in his name. We're to follow him for what he has done. We must follow him because he has left the greatest of circumstances and he's taken on the very worst of circumstances for us and he's been broken for us in our place so that we through him can be reconciled to God. Well, this brings us to one final question that we need to answer here this morning before we close and it's this. It's the how question. How do we access this? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, 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 wanna, I want my hunger satisfied. I want my thirst, my spiritual thirst quenched. I want to be reconciled to God through Christ. Hopefully, if, if you haven't done that already, that you're wanting that. Well, how does, that, how does this happen? How does one access this? Where do you go? What do you do? Well, Jesus tells us, look, in John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So this is how we, we, we access what Christ has done for us. We go to him, and we eat his flesh, and we drink his blood. Amen? Can we close now? No, we need to explain this, don't we? We need to unpackage this just for a moment. What does that mean? What's he talking about here? Eat my flesh and, and drink my blood. Well, Jesus is obviously speaking figuratively here, right? And this is not uncharacteristic of Jesus, especially what's recorded for us in John. But I want to be careful, though he is speaking figuratively here, I want to be careful not to weaken or cheapen what he's saying, because what he is saying is still radical. 
What he's ultimately saying here is this. He's talking about believing in him and trusting in him and in him alone. Let me show you where we get this. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, I am the bread of life, therefore come to me. I am the bread of life, therefore believe in me. So when Jesus says, you're to eat my flesh and you're to drink my blood, he's saying, you're to believe in me. And when Jesus says believe, he's not simply saying, no facts about me. No, he's saying, you have to realize that nothing in all the world can satisfy you but me. He's saying, you have to realize your desperate need of me. You have to forsake all else. And you have to run to me and cling to me and trust in me and in me alone to satisfy the hunger and quench the thirst that you have. Now that's radical, isn't it? Notice after Jesus makes these radical claims, we see two responses here. We see the response of the crowd and we see the response of his disciples. In verse 66, we're told many in the crowd turned away from Christ. They say, too radical, we're out. And they bolt. They're out. And notice Jesus lets them go. Isn't that interesting? Notice Jesus doesn't adjust his message here and and water it down a little bit so that they'll stay. He tells it, he, he gives his terms, he tells it how it is. He doesn't sugarcoat things and he lets those who go, go. And then he turns to his disciples and says, what about you guys? Are you guys going too? And I love Peter's response, don't you? He says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe in you. We have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. We're not going anywhere. Now notice Peter doesn't deny the fact that Jesus' teachings are radical here. He doesn't say, well, what's the big deal, Jesus? You're not telling us to do anything too too extreme. We'll We'll stick around a while. He doesn't say that, does he? Probably because he believed that Jesus' claims were radical. But he says, Jesus, you're Lord, and we're not. So whatever you say goes, because in you and in you alone is eternal life. What a response. Peter probably felt that Jesus' claims were radical, but instead of going his own way, he chose the way of Christ. So his disciples followed Jesus And the crowd left. Folks, this is the choice that many of you are faced with this very day. I know that there are some here this morning, some of you here, who have yet to make this decision for Christ. Some of you here this morning who have yet to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Some of you here who are still sitting on the throne of your life. Well, listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat things for you either and tell you that you can remain on the throne and have Jesus too, because you can't. Listen, the claims of Christ are radical. He doesn't allow you to come on your terms. He wants all of you, or he wants nothing at all. He wants you to die to what you want. He calls for us to crucify ourselves. He wants you to give your life up. He wants your life And he wants to be your Lord and nothing less. And that's extreme, isn't it? But those are his terms. There will be some of you who say, that's too extreme. 
and you, like the crowd, will turn away. I wish that weren't true, but it happens all the time. But for those of you here this morning who have ears to hear, hear this. I urge you, those of you who are truly listening, to not turn away from this calling. I urge you to respond like Peter did when he said, Lord, though your teachings are tough, though your terms are extreme, I'm not going anywhere. You are my Lord and I'm following you. Pray that if you have not, that you would respond to Christ in this way today. Maybe he's doing a work right now in your life. I urge you to respond to him right now. Just say to him, Lord, up to this point in my life, I've been doing things on my own. On my own terms, in my own way. And that way has been the wrong way. So I surrender all to you right now. I pray you would make that decision today. Let's pray.